I do sometimes feel like a bit of a fraud that, you know, someone's paying me to change a couple of words in a sentence that has this dramatic effect or just taking them like a few levels up and looking at things differently, looking at them from a different perspective. Because when you see things differently from a different perspective, you see different things and then you can start to change. So, yeah. Welcome, everyone, to the next episode of the Business Blind Spots Exposed podcast. I'm going to call it the Blind Spots podcast because that's a lot shorter. But uh, thank you for joining in and listening in uh, today. If you listen to some of our past episodes, uh, there's lots of nuggets of wisdom that I have learned and perspectives that I've gotten from the experts, the industry veterans, the people who've been there and done that. And I just want to introduce to you real quick again what it is that the Blind Spot podcast is all about. I truly believe that the greatest leaders are the ones who are looking for the narratives that emerge in their organization. They're looking for the stories that happen at the small level as well as the large level. And they use data to help them find out what's actually true and verify their suspicions or what they suspect. The purpose of this podcast is to bring people to the table who've been there and done that, who've seen these narratives occur and what they saw and what were the results of it? Where did it start from? And what were the potential effects of it? Because you might have the same thing happening in your organization. And if you do, this might be an opportunity to start to find something that you can uncover and unlock at the next level. I highly encourage you to tell us where you're connecting from. We've got people who connect from all over the globe who get various comments, uh, various nuggets of wisdom from the different perspectives. Please chime in and tell us who you are. Uh, and that you're where you're connecting from. It looks like we already have uh, we already have uh, someone joining in already. Uh, and, and thank you, Aymar. But today, I've got Tina. Tina, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm uh, doing super. I'm I'm actually very excited about this because, um, and we were just talking just before we started here about about a little bit of this. The topic of our, uh, our our conversation today is maximizing company performance with a cultural lens. And the conversation we were just having a moment ago is how companies try so many different things from different perspectives. Some of them are newfangled ideas. Some of them are tried and true, but they may not still get there. And then they ultimately come to the question of, is it my culture? And, 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 and Tina, the answer is, yes, it is. <laughs> And, and I hope in our discussion today, we can uh, uncover some more of those things. Tina, I want you to start speaking here in a second, but I want to tell everyone why I invited you here. So I'm going to read a little bit about uh, your, your, your bio and your background. You've worked in many, many different um, companies and industries. You were a for, former Fortune 500 senior exec that turned into a culture consultant and an executive coach. And I want to say the last time you and I had a conversation. I just immediately knew. I was like, "There's, there's a lot here with Tina. There's so much wealth that she draws upon." You work with public and private sector companies. You've helped them build a new set of beliefs and a new set of perspectives on how they should look at leadership in a completely different way. Sometimes it's all about where you stand and how you look at things. So that that made them transform their beliefs into behaviors that change their long term goals and their long term outcomes. Uh, but started with small, low-hanging fruit kind of wins, which is what I, which is what I love hearing. Uh, I love this. It says you're a firm advocate of the human element in driving organizational success. To me, a hundred percent of all value that's created in any organization is about people. And if you don't see that it's a hundred percent about people, I think you might be missing the missing a point. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and I think that's that's what I really liked about that is that you're all about getting the best from people where they actually enjoy it and their heart is in the game. It's not something that they're, uh, you know, it's it's not the beatings will continue until morale improves. It's because they want to run forward yeah. themselves. Uh, so building environments where they love, uh, want to be, and love to achieve the impossible. Tina, did I do a fair job of kind of setting up a little bit about? who you are. I mean, I, that was a small little snapshot to who you are. <laughs> no, perfect. No, you talked about the human element, which is what I'm 100% all about. So having been a leader in big corporate and working as an executive coach and culture consultant, uh, it's still, and it always will be about people because that's where the magic happens. 
Simon Sinek uh, did a TEDx talk. I mean, he's done a number of them. He did one talk where he, start, he said, you know, I feel like a little bit of a fraud. And the reason why is I'm in this business of talking about why and how we do things as organizations. And he said, I shouldn't be in business in theory because it, it's so plainly profound that that's the answer. Uh, Tina, do you feel like that at all? Sometimes we're talking to people about how to work with other people and build a culture in their organization. It's, it, to some degree, it should be so plainly obvious, but it isn't. Is, does it, have, it, have, you, have you ever had that thought? <laughs> <laughs> Every day. <laughs> it is when you say it. So this is where it gets really interesting because when I work with leaders and, and well, people in general, when I say things to them or I point things out to them, immediately what I'm saying is pretty obvious to them. And we forget. We get very tied up in this, this day-to-day hustle, bustle, doing stuff that we actually forget the bigger picture. And when I coach people, it's really interesting. I don't change people's personalities. I mean, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to help them to be better at what they already do. And it's the slightest little tweak that has a disproportionate effect, which is what I'm actually going for. And I do it with culture. I do it with coaching. It's generally, it just comes back to the people. So I completely see what Simon Sinek is saying, because you do sometimes feel like a bit of a fraud that, you know, someone's paying me to change a couple of words in a sentence that has this dramatic effect or just taking them like a few levels up and looking at things differently, looking at them from a different perspective. Because when you see things differently from a different perspective, you see different things and then you can start to change. So yeah, I mean, I fully appreciate where he's coming from and I I guess I must be a fraud too then. I think me too, because lots of times when I go into organizations, it's the same sort of thing. The profoundly obvious, sometimes you already know it. You just haven't accessed it recently. Uh, and I think that's kind of what I'm hearing from you. It's not that you're teaching new things. It's just pulling the tools that have been sitting on the shelf for the last six years and saying, you know what? It might be time to use that's that. Tool. And that's, uh, that's a really great point. We, all have, we have these tools already. But as we move through our careers, as we move through leadership, as we start to run organizations, the skills that we use change, right? So we, we have the skills. So when we're at the, the starting point, we're very much technicians. It's very transactional what we do. But then as we start to go through our careers, we have to rely less on, on the, the tactical and the, and the technical stuff and more on this human connection. And if we try and be technicians at these senior levels, hey, guess what? We fail. So, it, it really is. It's all there. It's all in there. But we just have to start using things differently and drawing on different skills that have probably always been there, but we haven't always applied them at work. So t- so t- here's I, I'm going to tell you, I, I've got a flat out problem because every time you and I talk, uh, there's about 30, 78 ideas that float through my head. <laughs> now. Like, I, th- I think I need to ask you about this one. And I'm trying to keep up with the stream of ideas. And but while still trying to play, stay present and understand the, the knowledge that you're just imparting upon me. Um, one of the things that just came up uh, when, when when thinking about that is just that there's a model I saw once from an organization called Bell Leadership, which studies a lot of leadership. And they have this triangle. And on the, on the left-hand side of it <clears throat> is this idea of technical expertise. And on the other side of it is personality. I feel as though our world has made a little bit of a shift towards that technical expertise, that competence side, uh, as in you've got to have technical expertise to be great. When in fact, as you start to rise rise to the top, just in this triangle model, as you go to the top of the triangle, it's more about personality than it is about technical expertise. And I think that's what I just heard from you, is this idea that we've been trained classically in our schools with our report cards and everything, do well technically. But as you get move up in an organization, that's not what matters anymore. Is it, did I hear that right? Absolutely, 100% spot on. Yeah, you heard that right. The, the emphasis that we put on IQ is enormous. And we have this, I mean, in North America particularly, but we have this incredible emphasis and focus and an intense desire to be smart and to be seen to be smart. And whatever that means, to it means different things to different people. And yes, it will get you a job. And yes, it may get you your first couple of promotions. 
but it will not get you higher up the ladder. Unless you can really relate to people and unless you have a really strong EQ, that really, really strong emotional intelligence, you get to a point where you get stuck because you become extremely technically reliable, but you can't deal with people or you don't deal with people well. So people delegate work to you because you're reliable and it becomes more of a, an indicator to keep you where you are. So those technical skills become a given. If you want to go further, you really have to develop on the emotional intelligence side. So long answer to your question. Yeah, you, you did hear it correctly. No, I, I appreciate you giving more color to it. And again, Imar, thanks for chiming in. Ravi, hey, nice to, nice to see you. Thank you for chiming in. Ravi is a, uh, is a great soul himself. Uh, he does a lot of mind shift, uh, mind shift for children in terms of starting early with them. And, and he said, where they love to achieve the impossible. Phew. Very well said. Thanks, Ravi. I appreciate you chiming in. And others listening in, please uh, help shape the conversation that Tina and I are having. I think there's a lot here and, and your comments will, will help shape it. So please feel free to comment and, and, and tell us what you're thinking. Do you agree, disagree? Vinay, I, I, I don't like your haircut. That's fine too. I mean, I may respond differently to that. <laughs> so, uh, Tina, one other thing I want to uh, talk about, you know, I... I That's my dog. Doug's got a comment. <laughs> the pleasure of working at home. <laughs> uh, I also saw something else. Someone was talking about this idea of we're constantly going through this learning cycle, but actually everybody's going through a learning cycle, whether you, you know, everyone says I'm a constant learner. Yeah. And that's kind of table stakes to some degree. Right. And what this person said is the real mark that allows you to move to new levels of leadership uh, and new levels of performance is your ability to unlearn or put things on the shelf. Right. So you may have had it there. You had the wrong, you learned something, a tool when you're 20 years old, but now you're in your mid thirties, you're in your forties, you're in your fifties that tool is now got a different level of utility to you because you now have a greater perspective on it. So unlearning what you learned as a 20 year old, now relearn it as a 45 year old. How, how does that sit and how does that resonate with you? It's, it's a really great point. It's a really great observation. It's, there are skills that we have and we develop, but we start to use them and, and employ them in very different ways as we go, not, not just through careers, as we go through life. And I love what Ravi said about, uh, or what you said about Ravi, about working with young kids and really developing their emotional intelligence. I try and impart this on my nine-year-old all the time, which isn't always that successful, but, you know, I, I try my best. The, this emotional intelligence needs to be developed really young because we, we start to develop it and then we hit teenage years, right? And then everything just goes to hell in a handbasket. As you know, for some reason, God designed our brains to develop from the back to the front. Why? I don't know, but it makes no sense to me. So when we get into later life, you know, we, we've got these developed brains now at the age of our mid twenties. Now we start to pick up where we left off when we were younger, but we have to use these skills in very different ways or this knowledge in very, very different ways. And there's also an element of when we go into the workplace or we go through life, we go through leadership, that we start to get, you talked about imposter syndrome, Vinay, and we start to get really self-conscious about doing things that we've always done in a different environment. And it's very interesting, when I work with senior leaders, the majority of senior leaders that I coach, they've got everything they need to be successful. What they haven't done is exactly what you just said. They're not taking these skills and using them in a new way. They're using them in the way they've always used them. And so that transition, that leap, that jump, really has to happen and taking a, a step back and, and really looking at, okay, what do I have in my toolkit? What skills do I have? What, what um, personal attributes do I have that I can use in this situation that will benefit me, but in a different way? How do I use them in a different way? And if we don't make that leap, we stay stuck where we are. So I, I don't like to talk in terms of good and bad because Gosh, uh, I, I say good, uh, black and whites are good and bad is the domain of children. Continuums are the domain of adults, right? Very rarely do I see in my life something that's good or bad. It's goodish or badish. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what I'm hearing a little bit here in sort of the subtext of what you're saying is that there are these behaviors that we have learned over time 
that tells us, mm, I'm not going to do that. I should not express myself in front of people for fear of, maybe when I was an eight-year-old, I said something, or a nine-year-old, I said something, and my parent or you know, an adult or someone else told me, that's bad, don't do that. And I remember that story, and it's now it's holding me back from speaking a truth. Uh, and it doesn't have to be woo-woo kind of, you know, touchy-feely kind of truth. It's just a truth about a situation, but it's holding me back from saying that when in fact that's the most effective way to get something done. Is that, is that a fair statement? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, we, we learn it when we're kids, absolutely. We learn not to say things and not to do things. And, um, you know, as kids we're told, don't say that, don't do that. And the other thing that I really would advise any parents listening, please don't say this to your kids. When we say, don't say that because you might hurt somebody else's feelings. Well, somebody else's feelings are none of your business, actually. They're the other person's business. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> you cannot hurt somebody else's feelings. They can only hurt their own feelings. And, you know, it's it's never good to say things that are deliberately, when you're trying to offend somebody. I mean, nobody should ever do that. But we say things sometimes because we're saying things from our own sphere of understanding and our own experiences. And then we say things and somebody takes offense. Now remember, we take offense, we don't give it. So that's a choice, by the way. So we, we choose to take offense and then somebody gets this really negative reaction or your parents say, oh, well, you can't say things like that. Now, I remember one day, perfect example, my son was, we were in Walmart and um, there was a disabled lady in a wheelchair. It's one of the ride-on scooters. And my son was about six or seven. And, he, and this is very much from his own experience why are you in Walmart in a lawnmower? <laughs> well, of course, I just cringed. And I thought, don't say anything. <laughs> say nothing. Say nothing because he's doing it from his own understanding of that situation. Now, that's an example of a child. But if I had said to him, Miles, don't, don't, you can't, don't say things like that. Don't say things like that. Why not? I mean, the lady was wonderful. She thought it was hilarious. And we somewhere along the line we lose that because as adults we start to impose these things on our kids and then our kids get to be in the workplace and then they sit there and they won't speak up because they think it might offend somebody they might look stupid it might be too risky it might be as maybe somebody already said it which usually it hasn't or maybe I shouldn't say this because it's not very corporate and then we start to put all these caveats on ourselves and we censor ourselves and then guess what then we feel inauthentic and then we get frustrated and then that's how company culture starts to develop. It's because of behavior. So I, what I always tell my all of my clients and people I know in general is if it's in your head, say it in a constructive way, but say it, get it out there, say it. Because great leaders are the ones that are prepared to sail right on the line. You know, they're not over the line into the illegal, unethical, immoral side of things, but they sail right on that line. You want leaders to be able to take a risk. And sometimes that's saying something that you know might be controversial or unpopular. But often that's the thing that may move the needle. So does that answer your question? Uh, again, I think 78 questions popped into my head. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Tina. You, keep, you seem to keep doing that to me somehow. I'm sorry. You've got <laughs> fantastic talent there. Uh, I, I, I do, I do like that because, uh, and Ravi, I would love to hear your, uh, your opinion on this because we are talking about uh, children and, and kind of these early behaviors and kind of stimulus that we give them these, the bumper lanes, if you will, you know, I've heard people say, you know, children can be so harsh or can be so mean. And, and my response is I, I kind of take exception to that saying, no, I, I, I completely disagree. That's a very, very binary way of looking at things. Children say things because they don't have, I mean, when people say they don't have filters, they, they truly don't have more perspectives or sets of lenses. They see things as good or bad. Hey, that could look different than me. I don't want to play with them. Well, why not? Right? Instead of just saying, oh, they're different than me. I don't want to play with them. They don't know any different. They haven't been taught any different. But as an adult, you have those options. And just because you have a feeling it doesn't need to be suppressed. I think what I'm hearing from you is, Say it because you have to let people be themselves and say, I don't like that. And that's okay for them to say that because that's their choice. That's their prerogative, not yours. And by having that open 
open dialogue, that authentic dialogue, because so many people use those words today, by having that authentic dialogue, it gives people the space to say what they really think. And it, and it doesn't have all these layers of fluff put on top of it. Did, so, I, did uh, I capture that? Yes, absolutely. One of the uh, one of the interesting things in what you just said is that people say things, or they, or they don't, but if they do say things, and it could be controversial or a little bit different, or maybe they're a little afraid to say it, they're afraid of the fluff that people mm. layer on top. And what tends to happen less and less, I find nowadays, is if somebody says something and you don't like it, why do we not just tell them? <laughs> so what generally happens? <laughs> why do we not just say, I actually don't agree with you, or... I really don't like that statement. What we tend to do nowadays or what you see happening is I find that really offensive. And then we scoot off into our corner and go and talk to other people by the coffee machine about it, you know, rather than just saying to them. Steam coming out of ears and everything. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And And I say this to people all the time when they complain about their colleagues or the bosses. And I say, well, have you spoken to them about it? Oh, uh, no. Start there. (laughs) It's, and again, it's one of those things that's so obvious, but we've stopped doing it. We just, we don't say to people exactly what's on our minds. And in the boardroom, conflict is healthy. And I actively encourage respectful conflict. It's healthy. Everybody should be able to have an opinion, a voice, a point of view, say things that might be unpopular, disagree, go nuts. The second you leave that room, it's put behind you and you carry on in a professional way. But if we don't have those conversations that generate these kinds of honest, really visceral discussions sometimes, how do we ever move the needle if nobody's saying that thing that's just sitting there that nobody wants to say? You know, it's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to say. We're all hoping somebody else says it. Somebody at some point has to say it because that's how we move the needle forward. And it's just, it's not personal. It's just human interaction and we all have different opinions. And you know what? That's perfectly okay. It's actually very vibrant inside an organization to have those kinds of discussions. And it is a scary place to be when you're saying, should I say that or not? But it is a, a cathartic feeling when you are able to say it, right? Absolutely. Uh, I, I want you to do a couple of things for me here. And, there, and there's two topics I really want to talk about. I mean, we, we call this maximizing company performance with a cultural lens, right? We've dove, we've already dove, dove dive so deep, <laughs> gone, gone so deep uh, in, gone. Gone. <laughs> into people, right? In, in people, in, their, in sort of their personality. But I think that's a foundation for the building, the culture, right? And maximizing this performance. Tie those things together for me. How do those all fit together? And what is why does why does what you are afraid to say? What how does that affect company uh, culture and ultimately that performance? That's a great question. So if you think about organizations and how they succeed, it's one hundred percent about people. It's all about people. You take the people out of an organization, you no longer have an organization. So it's the people that drive, <laughs> excuse me, the success of an org or the failure of an organization. So if you have a group of people that behave in a certain way, so let's say you go into a meeting for the first time and it's very obvious around the room that nobody's actually saying what they really want to say. And you don't need to be an executive coach to see that. We're all humans and we read over 70% of what people say by their bodies. And it's very obvious if somebody's holding back, being inauthentic, not actually saying what they mean or not meaning what they say, people see that. So what then happens is that everybody does the same thing because what becomes normal gets copied and then what gets copied becomes normal and what becomes normal becomes your culture. So if you've got a group of people that never speak their minds, that never say what they think, that always hold back, that censor themselves, you have now a whole company that does the exact same thing. So now you've got an organization of 10 to 50,000 people all who center themselves. Now relate that to performance objectives. Now, how can you possibly ever change things, be innovative, be creative, be crazy, blue sky, go nuts, if everybody around the table won't even say what they want to say, never mind do things that may never have been done before. So the behavior of people is 100% directly related to performance because they need to be able to take risk. They need to be able to say things. They need to be able to not antagonize, but definitely provoke. 
And I mean provoke in a positive sense, like provoke discussion, provoke action. And sometimes it's the things that sound absolutely crazy when they're first said and everyone's like, what? What, what did he or she just say? That, that's crazy. Or, oh, we tried that and it didn't work. Yeah, but you tried it in different circumstances. How about we try it again now with different circumstances? Somebody has to say that. And as soon as somebody does, other people start to do the same thing. And then you get this lively, vibrant, alive, creative, innovative, dynamic, energetic organization that is just, you know, you're either on the train or get off the track because, you know, we're coming through. And that's the power of positive culture. And that's what culture can do for an organization. But when you take it back to its grassroots, 100% of culture starts with behavior. So I want to share a quick story with you, which I think is an is an example of what you just said. I went to a conference, and this is one of those. Con it was uh, in, for a particular industry, but they actually had some self awareness, self uh, you know, uh, awareness building sessions. And there was one session about stress, and ultimately the punchline was that stress. It, there is no such thing as stress. If you're feeling stress, it's a choice. And that might be something that a lot of people don't necessarily like to hear. Stress is a choice. You can see a an adverse event, the way that not, not going the way you wanted, and you can see that as, all right, it's an opportunity to do better. It's an opportunity to change my direction. It's an opportunity to adjust. Or you can see this, oh, my God, the world has just happened to me again, right? It happened for you or it happened uh, to you. That's your choice. That's where stress comes from. You choose. It happened to you. As we went through, it was, a, it was a round circle, and I wonder if there's any people who are listening in who uh, may have been that session with me because it kind of got deep pretty fast. Someone told me that the conversation will always go to the what, what he, this person called the lowest common denominator, right, in terms of authenticity. Whoever's the most authentic is where everyone will also immediately start to fall to because you create a space for others to start to say that. So... We go into the session a room with 35 other people. I don't know, but maybe two other people in this room. And every single time I stopped for a second, I said, what is my real, real answer here? And it amazed me, not that I was, I didn't tell anybody about this, but it was amazing to me with a bunch of people that I've never met before, the depth of the conversation and the depth of their sharing, what matters to them in their lives? What are their fears? What keeps them up at night? And People weren't faking this stuff. Mm -hmm. And after about three or four rounds, you're like, wow, this is really powerful. And, and I saw it happen in 25 minutes. And what happens if you were able to unleash that superpower as an organization? Oh, my gosh. We're talking on a whole nother, another level of performance. That's what I just heard from you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's essentially what I do. I, I unlock that um, I don't like using the word authentic because everybody uses it. And I don't think anybody gets up in the morning and says, today I'm going to be inauthentic. Or today, <laughs> exactly. or today I'm going to be authentic. I don't think anybody ever gets up in the morning and has that thought. But we get into our place of work and then we we kind of lose who we are. We park this real person at the door and we pick up this, this suit, this this demeanor when we go in. And it's like a uniform and personality wise as well. And we change and we stop being real and we stop saying things that we would say at home and we stop being completely genuine and we stop being who we are. And it doesn't benefit you. It does not benefit the organization. It doesn't benefit your colleagues. It doesn't benefit your industry. And it's, and it's such a shame because as soon as you unlock that and unleash it, I mean, your organization just goes crazy. And that's why I said that, you know, I work with organizations to make the impossible possible just by working with human behavior. It, it is not complicated. It's no more complicated than that. And it's getting rid of all those stereotypical beliefs about organizations and how we have to behave as an executive. And yes, I mean, you have there are certain expectations of, of an executive. But at the end of the day, if they can't be real at the executive level, the rest of the organization can't function. So we have to raise people as they go through organizations in that culture that is very real and raw and genuine. And we accept mistakes and we take risks and we raise people like that so that when they do get to the executive level, they are mirroring that or they're displaying that for everybody else to see. So, yeah, 100 percent, I would agree with you.
Tina, I want to push you, push you back, push back a little bit here. I can't seem to get my words right today. I want to push <laughs> back on you a little bit today, uh, and that's is sculpt, culture is so squishy though. I got I got a bottom line that I've got to deliver. I got numbers I got to deliver. Show me how I can put culture as a number on my map, and show me that it is charting progress. Oh, I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard, oh, isn't that lovely? That's all touchy-feely. <laughs> never. <laughs> Great point, though. So I th as we were chatting before, that um, I often get leaders and, and organizational leaders say to me, so is every problem inside my organization culture? And I said, no, it's not. Not every problem inside your organization is culture. But if somebody comes to me and says, I've had all these problems inside my organization, we've tried everything, do you think it's culture? The answer is always yes. Of course it is. Because you've tried everything else. So, yes, I mean, we think that culture is this squishy um, thing that we can't get our hands on. It, it's quite conceptual. But, you know, I'm with Peter Drucker on this one. Culture really does eat strategy for breakfast. And I'm sure you've seen it in your own career, Vinay, where you've had fantastic strategy and the culture sucks. You try executing strategy in a toxic culture. Forget it. It's not going to happen. You can have a kind of mediocre strategy and a culture where people are like, yeah, we're doing this. And somehow you do it. <laughs> like you just, it blasts the targets out of the water. So I never try and convince anybody that culture is the way to go. They have to convince, they have to be convinced for themselves that they've tried everything else unless they're enlightened and they, they know the power of culture. But there are also ways of measuring culture. You can measure it. And, and there is a model that I use. It's the um, competing values framework that was developed by Cameron and Quinn from the University of Michigan. And it's been around for 30, 30 plus years and has been tested in over 30,000 organizations. And quantitatively, you can actually measure the organization's culture. The changes, however, are more qualitative because they're more behavioral changes and yes, you can repeat the, the measurement after after a year or so, but changing the behavior, that, that starts to get, it's not hard, but it has to be thought about, that these are the behaviors that we want to see, and this is what we are really, this is where we're taking our organization, and how do we measure that? That sometimes becomes a little bit more difficult. So we're in organizations at every level. Think about performance reviews. Yeah, what do people focus on in your performance review? Well, you met your numbers, you exceeded your numbers, you didn't meet your numbers, you're doing a great job, you've met all these objectives, whoop, high five, off you go. Or, well, you're weak in this area and you're weak in this area, so what we actually need to do is improve. You need to improve in these areas and, and we'll send you on a bunch of training courses and help you improve. Nobody ever actually discussed the strengths. This is what you're really good at and we need to use more of it and we need to get your strength and we need to leverage it in different ways. The whole way that organizations are set up is based on Managing risk rather than capturing opportunity because that involves risk. So let's manage risk. Let's work on people's weaknesses and let's measure the hell out of everything. And if you think about those three things, okay, we're going to manage risk, we're going to measure everything, and we're going to work on people's weaknesses, that's very much tied up in measure, 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 measure. Rather than how can I use the strength in a different way to get to this bigger objective? And that's really where culture... It, culture comes in and you have to have an individual culture direction for every organization and manage it very, very intentionally. And you can see differences very, very quickly. And when you do, that's when people start to buy into it, if they weren't already. But I would agree with you, it's a hard thing to buy into if you've never really paid attention to it. Now, there are, there are a plethora of um, academic research that shows that culture really drives, it moves the needle. But it's a hard thing to wrap your head around if you work in an organization that measures everything and it's very much focused on measuring everything. I'm, I'm going to, uh, there, there's a lot there to unpack. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking in terms of how I distill it, first of all, for my, the notes that I always think, you know, how do I distill it? And the one thing I, I heard in, in all of that, right, is this idea that you can't get someone to do something unless they see it as of value, right? Uh, and if, look, if you see that, if you think to yourself, I don't need culture, yeah, you're right. <laughs> if you think you need culture, yeah, you're right. 
that, that's, I think that's the first stepping stone, right? And once they start to say, okay, I need culture here, this is an opportunity for them to start to realize that if you want your people to start leaning into your organization, their heart has got to be in the game. Right? You, I mean, how many sports players have all, all of us just, it doesn't necessarily mean revered or put on a pedestal, but just had respect for because they got to that last moment and for some reason that they had that extra little kick or they got two inches higher than the person next to them and were able to head that ball into the goal to make, you know, finish the game. Where did it come from? It's because their heart was in the game. It was bigger than the numbers. It was bigger than their stats is because they wanted to do it. Absolutely. And building cultures about getting everyone in your organization to say, I have some value in this organization and I want to do it. Is that fair? 100%. Yeah, you're talking about purpose, right? So you see these, uh, oh God, I could talk for hours about this, but I won't. <laughs> you see as you walk around companies sometimes, their mission statement on the wall and their values and lovely wall art, you know, because that's really all it is at that point. And it's a it's a make work project it's never actually paid attention to because these mission statements are developed by consultants who never actually engage with the employees and find out what it is that really grabs them you know grabs them emotionally and to be honest there are only two reasons why anybody does anything and it always fascinates me that people have phds in motivational theory because i just see it <laughs> i see it very black and white you're either running towards pleasure and reward and enjoyment, or you're running away from pain and anxiety and stress. Those are the only two reasons anybody does anything. So if you can capture that reason that people will run towards, there you've got your purpose. And so in other words, what makes us do things is how we feel. It's all about feeling. And how do we feel things? It's because we engage with things. And when we engage with things, it's because we believe in something. So when you take culture back and you, you peel it back to its raw form, it's really about the set of beliefs that the organization has that the vast majority of people really buy into. And we were talking before, and I'll give this example because it's a really good one. When I was working in the pharmaceutical industry and I was running some big companies, the thing that kept me whole and it kept me honest was that at the end of the day, these medicines are either extending somebody's life or saving a life. So I'm either extending or enhancing somebody's life. And if this was a company I was actually working for, and that was our purpose to extend and enhance human life, I would probably quote that on a daily basis. And the way that we made decisions, people would actually say, yeah, but how does that extend or enhance human life? Oh, Actually, no, it doesn't. Okay, then we're not doing it. We must have saved millions upon millions of dollars just by asking that question because the whole focus was on this, this patient at the end of the day that our medicines were going to, but it really resonated with people on a very deep emotional level. So we didn't have to have the stick to beat people to, to get them to do anything. Everybody knew what their contribution was in reaching that higher purpose. And it was an amazing place to work. And I've worked for lots of companies that have been that amazing. I've also worked for a few that weren't. But um, yeah, it's definitely about purpose and engaging people at this very deep emotional level. And I know this sounds touchy-feely and kumbaya and let's all wear the same t-shirt, but it's way more scientific than that, that people act because of how they feel. That's the only reason we do anything, because we have a thought and then we have a feeling created by the thought and then we react to the feeling which causes a behavior which then causes an outcome. So what people tend to focus on is the outcome because that's what they can see, that's what they can measure. But actually, if you want to change the outcome, you've first got to change the thought <laughs> because then that changes the feeling which changes the behavior which changes the outcome. And we never actually go that far up. We just look at the, the outcome and then we look at the behavior. You need to change your behavior. Yeah, but I don't want to change my behavior. But you have to. You have to change your behavior because the outcome needs to change. So you need to do this so that we can get this. Change people's beliefs. Engage them on a belief level. Engage them from the heart. Everything starts to change. So I'm going to give an incredibly simplistic example to what you just said. I've got an eight-year-old son 
sometimes I have a challenge with getting him to eat his dinner or finish his lunch. And all I need to do is give him incentives saying, hey, would you like to have, would you like to go outside and play basketball? Would you like to have a bowl of ice cream afterwards? All of a sudden, his eyes light up and say, ice cream? (laughs) All of a sudden, dinner's not a problem anymore. Now, I can't do that every single time. I think there's another, there's, there's another issue there. (laughs) But the point, uh, to your point, people run towards pleasure, right? And they run away from the pain. If, in this case, that my eight-year-old son sees that dinner is something he just doesn't want to do and it's a pain for him because he'd rather be outside playing as opposed to eating, now all of a sudden if I'm turned into a pleasurable activity, something that he can derive something of his own desire that he feels good about, all of a sudden, magically, he's hungry again and he'll eat dinner. And I know that's an overly simplistic example, but I really do think it's almost that simple in terms of how you build what you do in a company, right? Allow people to lean into it as something that, oops, just lost lost you. Well, while we're waiting for Tina to jump back on. Oh, hey there, Tina. <laughs> we, froze we froze in cyberspace for a second. Well, anyway, I was just finishing up the idea that uh, I think it's that simple to use ice cream uh, the, the symbol of an ice cream as a way to get people to do things because they enjoy it. They find a purpose that is interesting, maybe as noble as extending somebody's life. Absolutely. And you could also go the other end as well by having him help make dinner. Hmm. So when he contributes to the end product, it suddenly becomes a more pleasurable thing to eat it. Yep. You know, it, it works at both ends. And yeah, I'll talk a little bit about this because it's one of my personal pet peeves, um, slightly off topic, but not really is where we use financial incentives in companies. And um, yes, do they work? Yes, they work. They absolutely work. But if you do this, I'll give you $10,000. Now, that's a a clear way of people running towards pleasure. I mean, who wouldn't want $10,000? However, as soon as you take the $10,000 away, guess what happens? They run away from it. (laughs) So does the work. it's a very temporary fix. And I mean, yes, I mean, if, you, if you've got a, a target to make and you need to do it fast, yeah, it'll work. But if you want to really get people to work longer term and really buy into what the organization is doing and really feel it and be passionate about it, you've really got to find out what it is that that $10,000 is going to allow them to do. And once again, it's a bit of a simplistic example, but if you understand, you know, why is that $10,000 important to you? Well, because I get to build my mum a new kitchen and she's wanted one forever. It, it's that, that's, that's the feeling. And it, there is no circumstance ever where money alone, just the money, is the motivator. It's the thing that allows people, what, what it allows them to do. So it's getting at that. You know, if, if we earn an extra, let's say we all get $100,000 in bonus this year. But what is the actual meaning of that? To you, it has a meaning. You can pay off your mortgage. But to somebody else, we just saved 10,000 more lives by doing that. It suddenly has, it takes on this whole different meaning. And a much and research, and I'm sure you know this, research has proven that when we give back, when we do something good, when we work towards a higher purpose, it makes us feel amazing. And I know this sounds really very kumbaya and let's hold hands. And it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. I'm really not into wearing the same T-shirt and doing all that stuff. It's singing the company song. This is more about how do, we, how do we get at people's hearts so that they connect with their minds so that when they see this goal that looks so incredibly challenging, that they see that as well. If we do that, we actually live that company's purpose. And then suddenly that impossible goal becomes totally possible and people make it happen. It's the same thing with your son and ice cream at dinner. Yeah. So it, I don't know if I uh, am losing you there. Are you? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. All right. Um, I, I'd like to stop for a little bit because I think we've been so, talking so much around this. I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about how do people find you and when do they start to engage with you? What, what questions are going through their mind when they say, I need to talk to Tina? What, is that, what does that look like? So people find me, uh, usually by word of mouth, actually. But 
people find me on LinkedIn because of something I've written. They'll find me um, something like this. I do quite a few podcast interviews. They'll find me through articles. They'll find me through my website. So people find me through very, very different means. But when they come to me, either an executive who needs coaching or wants coaching or a company that really wants to work on their culture, it's because they have, they're having problems. Nobody seeks me out when things are going well. <laughs> like, nobody comes to me and says, hey, my culture's great. I'd love to talk about it. That never happens, rarely happens. Or they come to me and say, you know, I'm the best executive. Everything's going great. I'd love to have a chat. That doesn't happen either, unless they're a former client and then they'll come to me and, and share that with me, which is great. So when people come to me, particularly individuals, the kinds of um, the kinds of questions or challenges or comments that they have when they get to me is, I want to be really successful in my career and ABC is holding me back or ABC is getting in my way or I've had some feedback that tells me that I need to develop here but I don't really understand it and I don't know how to change it. So the majority of senior executives I work for, they're obviously really smart people. The, the IQ is never the problem. It's what we talked about earlier. It's that they haven't made the transition from being the, the, the technical, tactical person to being this incredibly emotionally intelligent person. And so what I do is I help them to, to make that leap, basically. I've never had a senior executive that's come to me because they're not good at what they do. It's more on the emotional intelligence leadership side. From a cultural perspective, companies usually get to me, usually not always, usually get to me when they are having really serious problems inside the organization. So there's mistrust or things just are not moving or i had a client recently that was trying to shift the organization from quite a hierarchical culture which it had been for a very long time to a very innovative creative kind of culture and there was just resistance from everywhere and they were the the action that was being taken was here's the culture we need to we need to make this change to get to where we're going we have to be creative we have to be innovative but there's resistance everywhere we need to blast through the resistance can you help us and i said well first we need to understand the resistance so and, and that's what i've been working on with them so that's usually what people come to me with the other end that people will come to me with is we just started this organization two three four five years ago we didn't pay attention to the culture at the time because it wasn't important. It was, but we had bigger fish to fry. No, you didn't. <laughs> and then they'll get to me three, four, five years later and say, we really need to start paying attention to the culture. And it's starting to take on a life of its own. And whether organizations believe they have a culture or not, they do. Every organization has a culture. Culture develops. It develops in families. It develops in every organization whether you pay attention to it or not culture will develop on its own so i get people from really both ends of the spectrum either they're just starting out and they really want to work on their culture to create the right kind of culture or they're having problems and they just can't get things done so it's those two those two things really so i'm writing down this idea culture exists whether you like it or not oh it's there and you can feel it. You can walk into any organization anywhere and you can immediately feel it. You walk into somebody's family, you know immediately if you're going to enjoy being there or not. <laughs> you just walk into a room, it's like, yeah, I like it here or I don't like it here. I, as soon as you saw that and you said that immediately, but the, for some reason, I imagine someone walking into my house and saying, my, my God, these people are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> people say that about my family all the time. Sorry, please, what were you saying? I just said I like it that way. I like it when they come in and think we're all crazy. Agreed. <laughs> it's kind of kind of a natural filter, right? Their their culture ad, not a culture fit. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um I want to bring it to something that I've, I, I think, as we were talking in the beginning, just before we started, something that I've heard a lot about, this idea of employee retention, employee productivity, and recruiting. Talk to me a little bit about those three topics. Uh, I think retention, I'll say, retention and productivity, everyone is focused on that right now. I, I need to get the maximum value and return on investment on that, that investment on, that, on those people. But I also don't want them to leave. What do I need to do? And I think this language is a little part of where the challenge starts from. What, what do I need to do to keep them happy? 
it's like you know me going to my spouse and saying how how much attention do I need to spend so that you just don't divorce me? <laughs> it might be a little bit of a short-sighted way to start the conversation. Uh, talk to me about culture and employee retention and productivity. How does it affect those issues? Because so many people send, seem to be struggling with that or, or that's, that's what's keeping them up at night right now. Absolutely. Yeah. So people stay at organizations. In fact, people join organizations because of the organization's reputation. So, yes, I mean, do we all need to be paid? Of course we do. So people won't go to an organization if they're going to be underpaid. But let's assume that's all taken care of. People will go to an organization or not because they've heard the reputation of that organization. What people talk about, the stories that you hear, these are culture stories. So when people say, oh, my God, it's such a great place to work. It's, it's really motivating. It's challenging, but I really love it. That's culture talking. And people hear those stories and think this sounds like a really exciting place to work. So what culture is not, though, and you just said it, culture is not about keeping people happy. <laughs> and that's what I meant about the kumbaya, let's all hold hands and, you know, yay, we're all in this together. That's not what culture is about. Culture is about bringing this group of people together, and it can be a huge group of people, and aligning them behind one sole purpose that they all buy into. And we talked about this. It's getting them emotionally engaged. And when that culture, that, that big purpose, that big overarching purpose is very clear to an organization, it's clear to the people who work with it, they understand their contribution to that purpose. They, they work with each other. They, the flow of information is very fluid. They share information. They share success. They share failures. They share learning. That is all culture. But it's those things that keep people inside an organization. People say often, you know, why did you leave? I've never yet met one person that said I left the organization because I wasn't being paid enough. Not, not once. Even if it might have been true. Mm. But I've never heard it. When I say to people, what made you leave? What made you pursue other opportunities? Bad fit didn't enjoy the culture, not a good culture fit. Okay, explain that to me. What do you mean? Well, I just didn't feel challenged. People didn't work together. There was an awful lot of competition internally. Uh, people would just keep their ideas to themselves. It's quite toxic. The management is quite um, authoritarian. All of that is culture. So when you talk about employee retention, it is not about keeping people happy, but it is about keeping people engaged. That is not the same thing. So engagement and happiness, not the same thing at all. Engagement comes from challenge, working with, uh, working with colleagues, having incredibly difficult problems to solve. A great example, great example of this was um, Rocky Flats, the um, nuclear plant in Colorado, which was, had to be disbanded. And um, some consultants came in and said, this is going to take... I think it was 100 years they said it would take and like $70 billion. It was like crazy numbers. And um, they said, okay, fine. You know, this is really terrible. Then they got a different consulting firm in and challenged this consulting firm to, to start the closure of Rocky Flats. Now, just bear in mind, the people that were there had to work themselves out of a job. What this consulting firm did almost exclusively focused on the culture and they engaged all the employees in, we're going to work you out of a job or you're going to work yourselves out of a job. But they engaged them in a much higher objective. Their objective before was keeping the U.S. safe. They were protecting America. They were protecting their home country. That's massively motivating. But then it had to change to getting rid of those nuclear warheads. And we're not going to do this anymore. So then the big purpose changed to be an environmental cleanup and a massive contribution to the, the um, American economy, but also to the environment of Colorado. And that the purpose shifted from protecting the US from a, um, a nuclear warhead perspective, shifted to protecting the US and, our, and our, our nation, our country, from an environmental perspective. It engaged them on an equally driven emotional level, but it was a completely different purpose. And cut a long story short, they closed Rocky Flats in 10 years for 10% of the forecasted budget. Wow. All because of culture. And, and you think about, and I've, I've told my 
my kids before, whenever you see these war movies where the king or the queen is riding horseback and with their sword drawn, uh, saying we're going to attack this enemy that's got 10 times the number of people than us. They're not saying die from me. They're saying it's your families. It's your livelihood. It's your legacy that you're defending here. And those people will run headlong into battle, potentially Absolutely. to their death, because they believe in a purpose. You yeah. can People will die for a purpose. <laughs> they will, as long as they can emotionally resonate with it, as long as, yeah. as long as they feel connected to it and they understand their part in that purpose and how they can drive that purpose. But I, but I dare say a lot of people will not be in the line that says, here's $10,000 if you go die. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. I rest my case. <laughs> Uh, we've got a couple moment, more moments. I have, uh, I, once again, I, I've, I'm, I'm going to show you just because of proof. I've got, you know, a page, page of, of, of learnings from you, Tina, as, as, as always. Give me um, someone who wants to start this journey of building a better culture in their company. Give me, you know, one, two, three things that questions that they should ask of themselves in order to start that journey. Well, my outside, first outside, outside of con uh, contacting you, <laughs> <laughs> phenomenal contacting. So the first, the first thing would be uh, to ask why you want to change it. Okay, that, that has to be a reason. I mean, just changing culture for the sake of changing it isn't a reason. So, what is driving that decision? Is it because you can't achieve something? Because you find the workplace toxic? Are people leaving? Going back to retention? Um, oh, by the way, just on the Rocky Flats thing. All the employees stayed until they worked themselves out of jobs. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That that proves that culture really does increase uh, employee retention. Yeah. So, yeah, what's your purpose? Like, what are you trying to do? So, are you trying to achieve the impossible? Are you trying to um, achieve some new objective? Are you merging with a company? Is it a takeover? What like what's the reason that you want to change the culture? The second question is, what do you want to change it to? Because it's all very well saying that you want to change the culture or you want to evolve the culture, but why do you want to do it and what do you want to change it to? And the third question that I would have for people is, or I would encourage people to ask is, what is it about the current culture that won't meet your future needs? And that will really answer the question, you know, is it culture? It probably is if you're asking the question. In fact, it always is if you're asking the question. but what is it about the current culture that will not meet these needs in the future? So not what's wrong with the culture, because the culture may be absolutely fine, but it could just be strategically misaligned. So, I mean, research has shown that there's three significant things that drive culture success and success of an organization. It's the strength of the culture. Is it adaptable? And is it strategically aligned? Hmm. And understanding, well, my culture is fine, it's healthy, but it's actually completely off strategy and I need to shift it. So really understanding what it is about your current culture that is misaligned with where you want to go in the future. So yeah, I would ask those three, get, I would encourage people to ask those three questions. Well, uh, Aymar and Ravi, I appreciate you all chiming in and adding some uh, value to the conversation here. Uh, uh, and any of the any others who've been listening in, thank you so much for listening in. Uh, Tina, thank you. I uh, Again, I, I, I continue to be amazed that every time I listen on these podcasts, as much as I like to think I know, gosh, I, I continue to come away with pages of notes saying, gosh, I sh I'm revisiting these things on the shelf that I, I had been tucked away for a long time ago. And all of a sudden, oh, yeah, that's right. That's really important. <laughs> so thank you for helping bring, uh, in this case, 15, 16 different things back to the surface again and, and, and revisiting them for me and, and raising my gaze. Thank you for doing that. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure, Renee. And thank you for giving me an hour to talk about something that I love talking about. <laughs> so thank yeah. you. So, so, next time it might have to be a three-hour conversation. <laughs> <laughs> You're on. <laughs>